Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, and welcome to Voices from the Battlefield, part of Waterloo Remembered. The next extract is read by reenactor Rory Butcher and comes from the recollections of Private O'Neill. This is taken from Private Charles O'Neill's The Recollections of an Irish Rogue of His Majesty's 28th Regiment. Chapter 15, My Part in the Battle. We found little comfort, however, in our night's position, for as the darkness closed in, the rain fell in torrents and was accompanied by heavy thunder. The soldiers themselves, although their temptation would have been strong enough to induce them to turn away from the morrow's battle, still could not but feel the solemnity of the hour, thousands of who had bivouacked with them the previous night, in health and spirits, were now cold and lifeless on the field of battle. The morrow's action could not be less severe, and in such an hour it was not in human nature to be entirely unmindful of home and friends, whom it was more than probable we should never see again. For my own part, my thoughts reverted to my dear parents, and I could not but remember that, had I not disregarded their wishes, I should have been in safety with them. My disobedience appeared to me in a very different light from what it had formerly done, but I resolved to conceal my feelings from every one. I was just endeavouring to compose myself to sleep when my comrade spoke to me, saying that it was deeply impressed on his mind that he should not survive the morrow, and that he wished to make an arrangement with me that if he should die and I should survive, I should inform his friends of the circumstances of his death, and that he would do the same for me, in case he should be the survivor. We then exchanged the last letters that we had received from home, so that each should have the address of the other's parents. I endeavoured to conceal my own feelings and cheer his by reminding him that it was far better to die on the field of glory than from fear. But he turned away from me and with a burst of tears that spoke the deep feelings of his heart, he said, My mother. The familiar sound of this precious name and the sight of his sorrow completely overcame my attempts at concealment and we wept together. Perhaps I may as well mention here that we had not been in the action 25 minutes when he was shot down by my side. After my return to England I visited his parents and informed them of the circumstances of his death and I can assure my readers that it was a painful task. We were not alone in our sad feelings. The fierce contest of the elements, the discomforts of our position, and the deep gloom which covered every object, all served to deepen in every heart with those feelings which, I venture to say, even the bravest will experience in the stillness and silence of a night preceding a battle. With the early dawn of morning, all the troops were in motion. Wellington was to commence the action, while Blücher, with all his army, with the exception of a single corps left to contend with Marshal Grouchy, marched to support him. 
Our troops were drawn up before the village of Mont-Saint-Jean, about a mile and a half from the small town of Waterloo, on a rising ground which descended by a gentle declivity to a plain a mile in breadth, beyond which rose the opposite heights of La Belle Alliance. The first line was composed of those troops on whose the discipline and spirit the Duke could most rely. These were the British, three corps of Hanoverians and Belgians, and the men of Brunswick and Nassau. The second line consisted of those whose courage and bravery were more doubtful, those regiments who had suffered most severely the previous day. Behind both of these lay the horse. Four roads crossed each other in this position, affording great facilities for the movements of the armies. It included also the chateau and houses of Hougamont, and the farmhouse and enclosures of La Haisonve which were very strongly occupied and formed important outworks of defence. The whole front of the British army extended in all about a mile. The army of the French, meanwhile, had been marching all night, and many of them did not reach the heights of La Belle Alliance until late in the morning of the 18th. Napoleon feared that the English would continue their retreat to Brussels. It was therefore with much pleasure that he saw them drawn up on the opposite heights. At last, then, he said, at last I have these English in my grasp. 80,000 French soldiers were seen moving in close massive columns on the crest of the height as they took up their several positions for the day. When all was arranged, Bonaparte rode along the lines, reviewing his troops, and when he had finished and turned to ride away, a loud shout of Vive l'Empereur rolled after him, which shook the field on which they stood. He then ascended an observatory, a little in the rear, where he could overlook both lines, and from this point directed the battle. It was an eventful hour in the history of this great man, and he felt, as he did also his troops, how much depended on the issue of the day. Victory alone would give the courage necessary to send out reinforcements from a country where scarcely any were left but old men and youth. Defeat would be decisive of the Emperor's fate. These thoughts nerved the heart of the French and they fought with unexampled impetuosity. About ten o'clock the action was commenced by an attack upon the gardens and wood of Hougamont. They were particularly anxious to gain this post as it commanded a large part of the British position. It was furiously and incessantly assailed by the French and was gallantly defended by the English under General Bing. The French pushed up to the very walls of the chateau and thrust their bayonets through the door, but the Coldstream guards held the courtyard with invincible obstinacy, and the enemy were at length compelled to retire, leaving 1,400 men in the little orchard beside the walls, where it does not seem so many could be laid. Every tree in the wood was pierced with balls, their branches broken and destroyed, and the chateau itself set on fire by the shells. Travellers inform us that the strokes which proved so fatal to human life have not affected the trees, for though the holes still remain, their verdure is as beautiful as ever. Beneath those trees and in the forsaken garden, flowers continue to bloom. The rose trees and the vines, crushed and torn in the struggle, have flowered in new beauty and offer a strong contrast to the piles of bones, broken souls and shattered helmets that lay scattered among them. When Napoleon saw that he had failed in taking Hougamont, he strengthened his attack upon the main lines. Most of the British had been drawn up in squares, not like solid, but several files deep, arid, arranged like the squares on a chessboard so that if any of the enemy's cavalry should push between the divisions, they could be attacked in the rear as well as in front. When, therefore, the French artillery opened upon them, and whole ranks were mowed down, the chasms were instantly filled, not a foot of ground lost. But such was the impetuosity of the French onset that the light troops drawn up in front of these squares were driven in, and the cavalry, which should have supported them, fled on every side. The Brunswick infantry now opened their fire upon the French cavalry, with a coolness and intrepidity that made dreadful gaps in their squadrons, and strewed the ground with men and horses that were advancing to the charge. But the courage of the French did not desert them. Their artillery played at the distance of 150 yards on the British squares with dreadful execution. Their object was to push back the right wing of the British and establish themselves on the Nivelles Road. But the courage of their opponents rendered these efforts unavailing, and the struggle here at length subsided, to rage with greater fury in other parts of the field. A strong body of French infantry advanced, without firing a shot, to the position occupied by Sir Thomas Picton and Kempt. They had gained the heights when Sir Thomas, forming his division to a solid square, advanced to the charge with such an effect that after firing one volley the French retreated. 
That volley, however, proved fatal to our brave commander. A musket ball struck him in the temple, and he expired without a struggle. After his fall, it was ascertained that he had been wounded on the 16th, but had carefully concealed it from everyone but his servant. His wound, for want of surgical assistance, had assumed a very serious aspect. Again, the French pressed on, and attacking the Highland Division, drove them back in great disorder. But the brigade of heavy cavalry now came to their assistance, and again the assailants fell back. A column, 2,000 strong, bore down upon the 92nd Regiment, which immediately formed itself into a line, and charging on the foe, broke their centre. The French were now reinforced by their cavalry, and the British by the brigade of heavy dragoons. A contest then ensued which has hardly a parallel in modern warfare. The determined valour of the British, however conquered, and the French retired behind their infantry. Charles O'Neill was, I believe, something of a rarity. As a private soldier, we can assume that maybe he lacked education, or at least interest in affairs of military theory. But in the preface to his memoirs, he made clear that whilst he may be simply one of the rank and file, an actor and participator in the scenes, he endeavoured to tell, and I quote, a true knowledge of the evils and miseries of war. Throughout his work, he contrasted the great men, Wellington and Napoleon, with his own experience and that of his comrades. To me, as a student of history for several years now, with plans for more, his book is a goldmine, a man with a deep understanding of the context in which he found himself, but a determination to not let that take precedence over his own story. He regularly quoted from Napoleon's speeches, and provided the reader with plenty of detail of the bigger picture. But he began his chapter on Waterloo, not with a description of an army in the rain, but by telling us that throughout the rain, he spoke to his friend who feared for his death. This human story set amongst the great amount of carnage is one which stands out. O'Neill was kind in his descriptions of every soldier he mentions. The Dutch and the Brunswickers are gallant and cool in action, and even the French are not spoken of harshly. It's also curious that O'Neill mentions the trees in the middle of his account of Hougamont. Having been a reenactor for many years, and having been to Waterloo on numerous occasions, the landscape is one which grabs your attention. To a man with such an awareness of his place and his part in the battle as O'Neill, I can easily imagine the woods outside Hougamont being an image which stayed with him and his intent on discovering what happened to it afterwards. I've been passionate about history for as long as I can remember. I was first interested in the ancient Egyptians, then Roman Greece, then the medieval period, then I just got stuck on the Napoleonic period. The mixture of old and new, ancien revolutionary, a challenge not just to the government but to warfare and the very fabric of society. It grabbed my attention. Of course, Sharp spurred the interest on and got me interested in reenactment, but since then my interest has broadened significantly. And when I first got to Waterloo itself in 2013, suddenly all I'd read made sense. One tends to find this in military history. Observations about a battle only become coherent when you visit them. Waterloo is just such a battlefield. The mythos of this victory over the course of Canoga all fades away when you actually walk upon its ground. The defence of La Haison is that much more incredulous when you see just how far down the ridge the farm is, and the ridge itself is still a terrifying prospect of scale, even when factoring in the modern loss of height. I can't imagine what the French army would have looked like on that morning. Tens of thousands of blue coats looking back across the valley, and indeed the British army. Tens of thousands of red coats looking back across the valley at the French, all less than a mile away. But the memoirs of those who fought there are crucial to give us a glimpse into that past. O'Neill later talks about how at Waterloo, I quote, Bonaparte's star trembled in the zenith, blazing out in its ancient splendour, now suddenly paling before his anxious eye as the Prussians arrive. Waterloo saw the end of a chapter of European history, a chapter which was told as those who were ruled dared to question the order in which they lived. Napoleon was a product of the revolution, and his success came as a result of the further of the French nation. The men who populated his armies during his premiership believed in him, and Waterloo therefore not only represents a new era in European history and politics, but the death of a dream. And its legacy is that we remember it, over two centuries later. O'Neill writes that the charge of the old guard will be pointed to by remotest generations with a shudder. Two hundred years later, I think he was right. That was the Napoleonic reenactor Rory Butcher 
reading the recollections of Private O'Neill. And you can follow Rory on Twitter at rmb underscore history. Stay tuned to The Napoleon Assist, where more instalments of the Voices from the Battlefield series will be released throughout the day. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.